Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 228 of the Spoiler Alert Podcast, brought to you by MovieOutsiders.com. This is Mike. I'm here with Danny. And tonight, we're digging back into the best pictures. This one from 1938, the 11th film honored by the Academy as the best picture, Frank Capra's You Can't Take It With You. Danny, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing very well, Mike. How about yourself? Doing just great. Thank you. Before we get too deep in the discussion, had you seen this movie before? I had not seen this movie before. How about really? yourself? Really? Did you yeah. own it? Uh, I did own it. Well, when, <laughs> when the best picture choosing machine spit it out, I, I bought it. Oh, okay. This isn't and when you bought like 20 years ago on DVD and you just this never... This is sh- not. No, okay. no, no. I, okay. I, had, I did not own it prior to us choosing to review it a few weeks ago. Uh, now, I do own it. And on digital copy because the Blu-ray also came with a digital transfer. So I've awesome. got it in multiple formats. Well, you're going to need both. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Ever so know. when I was in high school, our drama group, our high school play was You Can't Take It With You one year. Oh, okay. And about four days before the play was set to uh, debut, the police in my small hometown had done a weeks-long sting operation to catch high school kids smoking behind the quick trip. Were you one of these I'm, kids? No, no. But I'm, <laughs> okay. but I'm not making this up. This was like a week's worth. This is like for the, real, yeah. Like this is cops like in a motel room with like through the, you know, through the window blinds with a video camera. And they video Tax cam- dollars hard at Tax work. dollars, you bet. And they came to the high school and they showed the tape, you know, to the teachers and principals. And they pointed at all the kids who were underage who were smoking. And all these kids got tickets for smoking. And if they were involved in extracurriculars, they were kicked off for oh, the rest no. of the season. So, like, okay. football team lost a bunch of people, basketball team. <laughs> and, like, five people from the play got kicked off. So, do they have and, to, do they get understudies or? So, well, we didn't have understudies at the time, but we had a group that in like three days had to learn <laughs> their lines. A couple of these were smaller roles, but one of them was a major role. Oh, no. And this poor girl, she was a great friend of mine, and we had her lines written on every prop. So, she would have her purse in her lap and she would just have to look down and read the script because she had. Yeah, she was given, oh, like, a total of, like, six hours worth of practice. <laughs> and it was a fairly large role. So I had not seen the movie of this, nor had I seen the play. I have actually been in the play of this, but it was such a train wreck, despite everyone's hard work and best intentions, that <laughs> I just show, had to laugh. Yeah, the show the had to go on. The show must go on. <laughs> had to go on. Nothing and to that be done. That would have sucked to have penalized the cast that was not participating in this, like you just right. cancel the show. Right. But like, unlike a football team where you just like get the, you know, the wide receiver to play quarterback and you know, it probably sucks, but you know, you could swap roles around. You can't just find five others willing. And it would really suck if these had been people that like tried out and like didn't make it. And now you're like, wait, could you? Like, could right. you maybe come back and be in it? Did you have a big role in this? Honestly, I don't even remember my role because I remember so much around the drama of the sting and then these these poor people just trying to to shove the play into their brain and not just rote memorize it. You know, you're trying to, you know, trying to play a comedy, you know, you're trying to you know deliver the line with with some sort of humor or inflection and all the blocking and it was just 
disastrous. I mean, because he rehearsed those things for weeks. Weeks so and weeks like and weeks and weeks, yeah. yeah. Think of just bringing five key characters in at the end with three days. Oh, that's rough. That's rough, rough for everybody. That's hilarious. Great story. Well, so that's, that's my connection with uh, You Can't Take It With You. I want to get to a plot recap and, and certainly kick off the episode, but I think we should just take a moment to recognize that while this movie uh, is 80 years old, I think it's notable not only for being the best picture winner from 1938, mm-hmm. but this was the third best director win for Frank, Frank Capra. Yeah, in, I mean, the, the Academy has only years. been around for 11 years. Yeah, I mean, and, and this was, I think, his third in five years. That's and, and he'd been nominated one other time in those 11 years. So four out of 11, he gets a nomination. Three out of four, he wins. He wins. Man. Tip of the cap to Frank Capra. Now, we've reviewed already um, It Happened, it happened one, one Night, night. Yep. Uh, a Best Picture winner for which he also won Best Director. Yes. Uh, and I, th- that movie stylistically, I think, was kind of similar to this in a yep. goofy comedy sort of way. But I still always associate Frank Capra with It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life, you of bet. All time, which is certainly not a comedy. There's some funny, heartwarming moments throughout it, but n- not a comedy. It, it's definitely a, a dramatic film. And what I have always considered to be the uh, quintessential Frank Capra, but I don't think that people who would be uh, students of Frank Capra would consider that to be his no. defining film. This is a little bit more his milieu. I agree. And it's also the first time he worked with Jimmy Stewart. And having seen It's a Wonderful Life, I don't know how many dozens of times in my life, to watch this, you see so many of the actors who went on to be in that yeah, film and this. So right. so Capra definitely had sort of a repertory group that he trusted and, and would use often uh, Not which unlike, I think is really like great. Wes Anderson or um, Woody Allen. Cohen Brothers. Right. Cohen Brothers use a lot of the, the same principles. But yeah, Lionel Barrymore is in this film. Uh, a lot of even the smaller uh, character roles in the yeah. film. I recognized the faces uh, from It's a Wonderful Life, including that damn bird. There's a raven in the movie, and he was in all of the Frank Capra films. Get out. Uh, the I bird is in all of them? I mean, I don't know if it's the same bird that survived all along, but he always had, I think they called him Jimmy the Raven or something like that. So he's in there as well. Well, and that's funny you mentioned that because that was going to be a what's up with. I thought it was a crow named Jim. And I thought, have oh. you really got Jim Crow in this? <laughs> oh, God. Have you really? Is that what we're doing? I'm pretty sure it's a raven. But okay. Yeah. Fair. <laughs> Why don't you give us a plot Fair. recap, either from the film or from your recollections of starring in it as uh, a play? Yeah. Yeah. So if I were to sum this up, I would say that this is the story of a brave American capitalist working to create economic um, surplus, mainly for himself, but his family. And leveraging the free market and the resources he has at his disposal, despite being uh, the, the the attempts to be thwarted by a schizophrenically <laughs> outsider socialist anti-government tax dodging fluke. But if we were to talk about what's the plot, the plot really is about. Uh, a woman named Alice Sycamore who's in love with her boss, Tony Kirby, who's the vice president of a powerful bank owned by his father, Anthony Kirby, A.P. Kirby. Now, A.P. is 
attempting to put together a monopoly in the trade of weapons and munitions and needs to buy one last house in a 12-block area. And that house happens to also be owned by Alice's grandfather, Martin Vanderhoff. Martin is the patriarch of a very eccentric family where the members do not care for money, but prefer to spend their time having fun, doing makes them feel good, and making friends. A lot of these family members aren't even related to one another. Right. It's almost like a commune, either, yeah. some sort of they weird come hippie. in and out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah right. Now, Tony proposes to Alice, and she says that it's important that she introduce her simple and rather crazy family to his snobbish upper crust parents. And Tony, on a whim, decides to visit with his parents one day earlier than scheduled so they get the real uh, real the picture real flavor, yeah. Yeah, of what the Vanderhoffs are like. Now, there's an inevitable clash of the classes and lifestyles. The Kirbys are total pricks. Alice breaks with Tony, and it alters the future of her family and the Kirbys after that. And that's yeah. You Can't Take It With You. At watching it, did it did it bring back any memories of, of having not a one. play at all? No, not wow. a one. You yeah, were just too I, nervous about your friend and their yeah. first lines. Yeah. yeah, it was rough. Yeah. Um, I just thought it was okay. I mean, I, this being you know the the second Capra movie that we've seen uh, for the podcast, and being such a fan of It's a Wonderful Life, I personally really prefer It's a Wonderful Life. Mm-hmm. I agree with you that film historians and people who really follow his his uh, career probably would think this is more the the pinnacle or the apex. Certainly spoke right. to his politics a lot more, but I just uh, I found really long stretches of it pretty boring and sort of sapped of energy. Even though there's certainly some um, some real nice humor and and some real colorful moments. How about you? Yeah, I, I think you described it almost exactly as I would have. I I preferred. It happened one night of the Capra Best Picture winning films to this by, I'd say, quite a margin. Uh, prefer It's a Wonderful Life as well. I've seen Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, a non-Best Picture winner. I prefer that movie yeah. to this film as well. I think that the story itself is clever. And I, I appreciate that this is kind of a an early American cinema screwball comedy before screwball comedies were a big thing. But I think that this movie almost might have been a, a better short film, perhaps, because like you said, I think there were very long stretches that went by without a lot going on. Similar dialogue, kind of scene after scene. The funny moments, I think, were really funny. I think that there were a few really great scenes, but those scenes were about five minutes long, and I thought, man, if you could have found a way to keep those scenes in here and then just do all the exposition a little quicker... Yeah. You know, you could have had a 25, 30 minute short film that would have been a riot. Yeah. I mean, the, the movie's got a lot going for it. The cast certainly seems pretty game and pretty talented. You mentioned Lionel Barrymore. He plays Mr. Potter in uh, It's a Wonderful Life. So he plays like one of the ultimate Scrooge, bad guy, horrible, heartless jerks in film history. And in this movie, he's the lovable grandpa. Right. So it was really neat to see him sort of play against type or at least the type that I had come to associate with him. Um, and the rest of the cast was all pretty funny. I mean, pretty well done. Um, but boy, some of those sequences, especially when it got to Tony and Alice, the the sort of lovebirds 
when they would sit and talk, it'd be like an eight-minute scene <laughs> of the two was... of them on a park bench quietly <laughs> talking. And it was like, do we even need the scene at all? Like, yeah, not even right, just right. make it shorter. It just felt like, just cut it out. Like, the movie would yeah. be much tighter and, and you could get your, your plot points across. Um, I do think it's notable. I think it's kind of crazy that this won Best Picture. I mean, when you look at it, I mean, it is it is silly. It is a, a comedy. Again, the politics are really hot and heavy in this one as far as being anti-capitalist, anti, right. um, you know, free markets, pro-union, pro, you know, don't pay your taxes, right. all sorts of things. But took home, took home Oscar. Back then, the Academy was just obviously a different institution than what we have now. I feel like from the 1980s on, especially... It's it's been a lot easier to handicap at least the best picture winner, right? Yeah. That that's been nine out of ten times from the eighties on. You can usually guess what the Academy is going to go for at least everything that's going to be nominated, right? But back then, the string of movies that won best picture the first eleven years are just and and the twelve years the next year Gone with the Wind was the best picture right. winner. I mean, talk about your your whiplash between <laughs> right. this year to the next, so. Right interesting from that perspective as well i totally agree i really do love the the eccentricity of the house where lionel barrymore's grandpa character lived i i i mentioned uh wes anderson a little bit earlier as a guy that works a lot with the same cast i felt like that was almost a a wes anderson prequel like he would have built a house with just a ton of weirdos you've got old guys in the basement that are making illegal fireworks you've got a dude that owns and plays a xylophone like in the living room there's a xylophone in the living room who who owns a xylophone and the only other two things you know about that character is that he is dating the teenage daughter and he's from the (laughs) alabama football team that's his whole character (laughs) football guy who plays the marimba or the xylophone (laughs) You've got a daughter that that writes only because a typewriter was mistakenly delivered to their house one time. She's she's a horrible writer. I mean, the whole the whole cast of goofballs I just thought was great. An absolute riot. It 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 just reminded me of a Wes Anderson scene. Wes Anderson is a great pull and I I really now that you mention it agree. That's like a a total archetype you know, something he has used over and over. I mean, you think of like the Royal Tenenbaums, you know, everyone's just sort of like got a weird quirk about them and right. it's really something eccentric and bizarre. I wrote down, it feels like almost a predecessor to the Adams family. Mm. The same thing of like, they're all just there to be weird and do something that is wholly unexpected and only loosely connected in this case because they're all different monsters but (laughs) anyway yeah i think uh wes anderson's a a, a good poll i think what i disliked about it is that it's the movie is trying to be more than a screwball comedy and frank capra we know had at least a little bit of range from the few films that we referenced earlier but i think that the two conflicting ideals here and the politics that you referenced are so one note that it's yeah. kind of eye rolling. I mean, the villain capitalist businessman is he absolutely throughout the entire movie has no thought for anyone other than himself. He's he's a jerk to his wife. He's always concerned about what he's going to have to eat. He's a jerk to his son. He's a jerk to the girl that. And, and then of course the whole premise of the movie is that he's trying to 
buy a 12 block radius of the city to put up a munitions factory. So, I mean, already, you know, you, the, the guy's, the guy's a war profiteer. Right. So, I mean, so, so there's that guy on one side and on the other side, you've got grandpa Lionel Barrymore doesn't have two pennies to rub together, but lets everybody come and go as they please and solves every po- problem by playing the harmonica. Like, I think there were, there were more shades of gray between Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader in the Star Wars series <laughs> right. than there were between these two. And th- that, <laughs> I think that was just sort of a missed opportunity and probably a result of the source material, ultimately. I agree. I also struggled with, um, especially having seen It's a Wonderful Life so many times and seeing it first, boy, it feels like Capra really loves this third act where the whole town comes together and rescues our lovable hero and pours out their pockets to raise money for whatever crazy was, need they have. It was just like the scene under the Christmas tree. It was exactly it was totally like the like end that. of It's a Wonderful Life. And I just was like, wow, you went to this well at least twice, huh? Because it seems like a pretty specific well to go to. Now, of course, uh, It's a Wonderful Life was came years later, so this was the original. Right. So right. that movie copied this one, but... Uh, by the time I saw this, of course, it just feels so cribbed and yeah. such a, a Capra-esque, It's a Wonderful Life-esque thing to have that it really fell flat. Yeah. I also thought um, all the fireworks scenes fell pretty flat. I mean, the guys in the basement making fireworks, that's a funny gag and a funny idea. But boy, did they come to that well ten times. At least half a dozen times, yeah. Yeah, where yeah. just a firework goes off and someone jumps and the... Someone freaks out. There's an, you know, they, we get their shocked expression. And because it was the thirties and editing was a little slower, it's a really like someone jumps, the camera cuts to them. They take like a slow five second reaction shot. And then it cuts back to someone else. It's, it should just be a real quick cut. You know, if you want to give us that, it's just painful. What's up with that character who has like a nervous twitch where he blinks kind of severely? It was the most jarring looking thing. I I honestly thought initially, oh, I I don't think that that's part of the acting. Like it clearly Frank Capra would have said to the guy, "Dial that back a little bit. It right. looks really You're playing weird." Playing this a bit broad here, Ted. Right. Right. <laughs> but but no, there's a ner- character with a nervous twitch of like like his eye keeps blinking, but I mean his whole face contorts and it's just constant. I don't think I heard a word that character said. So there is a character. It's introduced early in the film. Grandpa walks up to him. Grandpa's at the um, the eye blinking, twitching guy's office to talk about selling his house. But before he goes in, he just randomly approaches an employee who is diligently adding sums from a book into uh, a a, a calculator. Right. And out of nowhere, he starts asking this guy, like, do you like what you do? (laughs) The guy admits, no, he doesn't. Asks, what does he do? What does he, what do you do? He says, I make things up, which is a weird thing. Weird way to say you're an inventor, by the way. What's up with that? But then he pulls up like a little bunny rabbit toy. The bunny rabbit just peeks its head up and out of a bag and spins around. Now, weird that he invented that. Even weirder that he brought it to work and it sits in his little like desk. Like he stands at a desk all day. And that some freaking stranger introduces himself. And within 30 seconds, 
He has shown him his invention and decided to quit his job and go live in the commune with this guy so he can spend his life making weird rabbit toys. I mean, weird that Grandpa was really enthralled by the rabbit, too, right? Oh my god, is that clever. I actually thought, so the, the, the accountant who Grandpa's talking to is named Poppins. Yep. And he's played by an actor named Donald Meek. Which I thought was a great name, great name for the actor because apparently he was often in character roles where he played kind of a passive sort of nebbishy little yeah, yeah. nerd. But I thought that that scene, the dialogue was getting a little weird to the point where like if it went one step further, I would have thought Grandpa was maybe kind of hitting on him. Totally. Like it was it was getting a little too close was, for comfort. Yes, and just the way he started using euphemisms. He's like, you know, we're just lilies of the field, man. Why don't you come over to my house? Come be a lily. And by the end, the guy's like, I want to be a lily. And it really <laughs> was like, what is going on here? This, this got odd. Yeah. 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 It, it really it really got weird really fast. And that was a crazy way to introduce grandpa to us and to introduce us to Poppins. I mean, it just yeah. was like, what is going on? Who in their it, right mind walks away from their job to go join the nutso guy who's offering you popcorn, maybe hitting on you? It probably depends on the day, too. Uh, speaking of weird introductions to characters and referencing the minutes-long scenes that would go on between Jimmy Stewart and Gene Arthur, uh, the first time that we see them together, that in the Me Too era would be considered assault, right? Like, I mean, he's he's touching her. She's trying to do her job. She has to answer the phone without using her hands. Yeah. Like, like picking it up with her tongue or something like that. Like, <laughs> the, And then the dialogue afterwards, the, the corresponding dialogue started to go kind of in a dark place, too. Yes. I'm, I'm thinking this wouldn't fly today. No. Even this- in a movie about, like workplace inappropriateness they'd be like we can't do that this is too weird bank vice presidents shouldn't be doing this with their assistants (laughs) with their stenographers right stenographer uh that's not good that's really not good what's with how much grandpa comes off like brian doyle murray and nick offerman had a baby (laughs) who was 68 years old yes yes you're absolutely right He, he does he he totally evokes that uh, what's up with the government approving a munitions monopoly? Does this seem to go against everything that we've learned throughout history that this this can or should be happening? That the government's going to allow this merger of two companies to to make the same product? That that was odd, right? That, that like, was he's odd. bragging about it early. And it's crazy that this movie's only eighty years old, and yet there's a point where uh, Kirby Senior says there won't be a gun or a bullet. Or a cannon manufactured in this country without us having a yeah. piece of it. We're still making cannons. Like, right. I'm picturing, like, the big bowling balls with, like, a fuse on the end. Right, You know, like, right, you're right, shoving right. the, like, the yes. little gray tube. <laughs> Were we still manufacturing a lot of those 80 years ago? What's up when Grandpa finally relents and decides to sell his house? And now Kirby can evict everybody in the 12 block radius because he now owns it and he's going to build. He sends them all a telegram that tells them they have to be out in 10 days. And these are like store owners. Yeah. And one of the store owners says to another, well, that certainly doesn't give us much time, does it? Like, that's his reaction. You've 
business is over, dude. Your way right. of life is over. And he's kind of like, well, I could have used an extra few days. I think what's up with everyone not being too upset with grandpa? Because he, he was like the linchpin, right? He was the one guy who wasn't going to sell. As long as he right. didn't sell, they wouldn't have to sell. Then right. his granddaughter breaks up with her boyfriend and she decides she's going to live in Queens. So she's just not living at home. And he's like, well, I guess we better sell this house and all move to Queens so we can be close to her, thus evicting the entire neighborhood. And the entire neighborhood seems okay with it because they just love grandpa so much. Right. Right. He's a popular guy. What's up when the two families actually end up having their rift post courtroom like suddenly all of the headlines of every newspaper in the country <laughs> right. is that this this woman is leaving the son of a banker. Like I, I was trying to put into place like what that would mean today. Like if the the offspring of Elon Musk got dumped. Like would would that even be a blip on our radar? Like would CNN even run like one of the little tiny print stories on the web page see and i feel like celebrity gossip consumes about 70 percent of our news so i do think it'd be a big deal but i don't think it would be above the fold on the front page of every newspaper <laughs> all, right. I, all right i do think it'd be in like the lifestyle section or or something buddy are you ready for five questions if they're all about this movie i'm very excited yeah, they're at least tangentially related to it <laughs> question number one Oh, we talked about this already. Uh, This is Frank Capra's third Best Director Oscar in five years. The Academy was only 11 years old at the time. Were he and his movies that good, or was there just less competition back then? I think that's a really fair question, but when you look at the number of nominees, I think there were like eight nominees for Best Picture this year. Yeah, Yeah, there were. So, I mean, there were a lot of films nominated early on, so there was no shortage of directors and, you know, uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood was nominated back in 1938, as was Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Actually, yeah, that one wasn't right. nominated, sorry, because they didn't want to, uh, the Academy did not want to encourage cartoons. It, it wasn't nominated for Best Picture, right, that's right. correct. Yeah, it was, I think it was got a sound nomination. Yeah, it got some like, technical like awards, yeah. right. Yeah. So, I mean, there were good movies being made by other people than Frank Capra, but he, he certainly seemed like he owned the 1930s as a director. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Question number two. The play on which this was based had only 19 characters, yet there are 153 parts in the movie. And that doesn't include several characters which were cut from the final film. Additionally, a 1938 feature film typically ran 8,000 feet of footage, but Frank Capra shot 329,000 feet for this one. What? Honest to God, how inconsequential was the stuff he cut? 329,000 versus 8,000? We don't fact check. Well, that's true. It seems odd that anyone would allow him to shoot 40 times the regular amount of film <laughs> just from a cost standpoint. Correct, yes. I mean, I guess the guy's already won two best act, two best director Oscars. You kind of don't get to tell him what to shoot and not shoot. And, but. A, and apparently the filming didn't even take that long, so you got to think like he was just constantly running. Like he'd fall asleep and just keep shooting. It's just doing like, run it overnight it, in case something right. happens. Seven yeah. cameras going on for each shot at the same time. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Mm. Uh, Question number three, apparently from somebody that knew you. I worked for several years with Danny. And just like Grandpa Martin Vanderhoff, Danny would buck authority and laugh about how he never paid income taxes. (laughs) Danny, have you paid them yet? That's, uh, 
That's funny. No comment. All right. So yeah. We'll move it. Move it move, on. Move right That's a personal question. Right. Uh, question number four. This this movie was included among the American Film Institute's 1998 list of the 400 movies nominated for the top 100 greatest American movies. Oh, wow. What an honor. <laughs> who are the four people who found this interesting on IMDb? <laughs> the four authors of that list, I'd have to add. Is there really a list of 400 films that were possible candidates for the 100 best films? I mean, they they have to do it somehow, right? They've got to whittle it down from something. I just would have always thought, like any of those best of lists that Rolling Stone pulls together, the 100 yeah. greatest guitarists, the 100 right. greatest movies, that, like the... The denominator, the sample size, is anybody who's ever played a guitar. Or right. any movie right. ever made in America, right? And then you get it down to 100 by just asking a lot of people, what do you think? And seeing where those lists align, right? Well, I mean, I, I, think, I think there's... I guess I would always say there's some sort of a, a winnowing process, right? You start with all the movies, you winnow it down to the 100 best. It's just odd that however you do it, if you go from... Let's say there's 10,000 movies to 100 in one cut, or you go to 10,000 to 1,000 from 1,000 right, to 500 right. from 500 to 100. Why would you publish the other lists? Correct. <laughs> right. That's just weird. Exactly. Just to make people feel bad. Right. Like, you, and, you didn't what, even make the 400 best. I, I want to know the, the list of 5,000 movies that they got the 400 from. That's <laughs> what's interesting to me. And final question. In 1999, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram declared Tom Hanks as this generation's Jimmy Stewart. Who would be this generation's Gene Arthur? Great question. I'm going to go with Amanda Seyfried. <laughs> is that right? Is that how you say Good it? One. I think you're probably right. I mean, we'll get those big bug eyes. <laughs> uh, sorry about the bug eye thing. Sorry about the bug eyes things. I'll be in my <laughs> office. Well, I think the Academy got it right. It was a charming film at times. You can't deny that Capra sort of had his finger on the pulse of the 1930s. You got Jimmy Stewart in one of his first roles. You got a whole group of the cast members that went on to It's a Wonderful Life. There's a lot to like here. It just, you could probably watch it in uh, at like two-thirds speed and get all the gags and uh, feel feel good about it. I think that it's a, a fine movie. And then as far as whether the Academy got it right... The only one on the best picture list that I'd seen before was Boys Town. Uh, Robin Hood ended up winning three that night, so it came home the most decorated. A shame that Snow White and the Seven Dwarves didn't become a best picture nominee, and it would be decades and decades before an animated feature right. film would be nominated for best picture. But, of course, when it happened, it was Walt Disney once again. Well, coming up next, we've got another remake, this time the contemporary, I think the third uh, cinematic telling of A Star is Born, this time starring and directed by Bradley Cooper uh, and starring Lady Gaga. Thanks for listening to the Spoiler Alert podcast. Please visit us online at movieoutsiders.com where you can see what films we'll be discussing next, comment on our recent episodes, suggest movies to review or topics to discuss, or submit questions for the five questions segment of the podcast. Stop by and visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash movieoutsiders, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at movieoutsiders. If you're a fan of the show, we'd really appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast subscription service you use. We'll be back again next week with another episode, but until then, 
Enjoy the movies.